Well, hello, and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanmore Major. This week, I'm going to be starting a new series of me reading sailing books. This has been asked for by a number of listeners. I did read from a couple of books when I was telling you all about my sailing heroes, 10 podcasts back. Um, but I thought I'd take this challenge and start reading some of these books that have been so important to me. And really, there was only one place to start, and that was the one that was requested the most, and that is Sailing Alone Around the World by Captain Joshua Slocum. This book was written in 1900, and uh, it is an absolutely fantastic book about sailing around the world. It's 120 years old now, but it is just as shiny and just as new and just as uh, beautifully written as it was 100 years ago. So I hope you enjoy this. You'll find the first 30 minutes of the podcast is me reading the first two chapters of the book. And thereafter, there's going to be a commentary session, which is me talking about the book, my knowledge, which kind of like increases uh, the, the story and kind of builds upon it. And obviously, I'm here in Nova Scotia. Joshua Slocum is from Nova Scotia. I've got a lot of personal things I'd like to add into this that I hopefully will build the book and make it into a, an even better read or listen for you. So without any further ado, Sailing Around the World by Joshua Slocum. Chapter 1. In the fair land of Nova Scotia, a maritime province, there is a ridge called North Mountain, overlooking the Bay of Fundy on one side and the fertile Annapolis Valley on the other. On the northern slope of the range grows the hardy spruce tree, well adapted for ship timbers, of which many vessels of all classes have been built. The people of this coast, hardy, robust and strong, are disposed to compete in the world's commerce, and it is nothing against the master mariner if the birthplace mentioned on his certificate be Nova Scotia. I was born in a cold spot, on coldest North Mountain, on a cold February 20th. Though I am a citizen of the United States, a naturalized Yankee, if it be said that Nova Scotians are not Yankees in the truest sense of the word. On both sides, my family were sailors, and if any slocum should be found not seafaring, he will show at least an inclination to whittle models of boats and contemplate voyages. My father was a sort of man who, if wrecked on a desolate island, would find his way home if he had a jackknife and could find a tree. He was a good judge of a boat, but the old clay farm, which some calamity made his, was an anchor to him. He was not afraid of a cap full of wind, and he never took a back seat at a camp meeting or a good old-fashioned revival. As for myself, the wonderful sea charmed me from the first. At the age of eight, I had already been afloat along with the other boys on the bay, with chances greatly in favour of being drowned. When a lad, I filled the important post of cook on a fishing schooner, but I was not long in the galley, for the crew mutinied at the appearance of my first duff and chucked me out before I had a chance to shine as a culinary artist. The next step toward the goal of happiness found me before the mast in a full-rigged ship bound on a foreign voyage. Thus I came over the bows and not in through the cabin windows to the command of a ship. My best command was that of the magnificent ship Northern Light, of which I was part owner. I had a right to be proud of her, for at that time, in the 80s, she was the finest American vessel afloat. Afterward, I owned and sailed the Aquidneck, 
a little bark which of all man's handiwork seemed to me the nearest to perfection of beauty, and which in speed, when the wind blew, asked no favours of steamers. I had been nearly twenty years a ship's master when I quit her deck on the coast of Brazil, where she was wrecked. My home voyage to the New York with my family was made in the canoe Liberdad, which proceeded without incident. My voyages were all foreign. I sailed as freighter and trader, principally to China, Australia and Japan, and among the Spice Islands. Mine was not the sort of life to make one long to coil up one's rope on land, the customs and ways of which I had finally almost forgotten. And so, when times for freighters got bad, as at last they did, and I tried to quit the sea, what was there for an old sailor to do? I was born in the breezes, and I'd study the sea as perhaps few men have studied it, neglecting all else. Next in attractiveness after seafaring came shipbuilding. I longed to be master in both professions, and in a small way, in time, I accomplished my desire. From the decks of stout ships in the worst gales, I had made calculations as to the size and sort of ship safest for all weather and all seas. Thus the voyage, which I am now to narrate, was a natural outcome not only of my love of adventure, but of my lifelong experience. One midwinter day of 1892 in Boston, where I had been cast up from old ocean, so to speak, a year or two before, I was cogitating whether I should apply for a command and again eat my bread and butter on the sea, or go to work at the shipyard. When I met an old acquaintance, a whaling captain, who said, Come to Fairhaven and I'll give you a ship. But, he added, she wants some repairs. The captain's terms, when fully explained, were more than satisfactory to me. They included all the assistance I would require to fit the craft for sea. I was only too glad to accept, for I had already found that I could not obtain work in the shipyard without first paying $50 to a society, and as for a ship to command, there were not enough ships to go around. Nearly all our tall vessels had been cut down for coal barges and were being ignominiously towed by the nose from port to port, while many worthy captains addressed themselves to sailors' snug harbour. The next day I landed at Fairhaven, opposite New Bedford, and found that my friend had something of a joke on me. For seven years the joke had been on him. The ship proved to be a very antiquated sloop called the Spray, which the neighbours declared had been built in the year one. She was affectionately propped up in a field, some distance from the water, and was covered with canvas. The people of Fairhaven, I hardly need to say, are thrifty and observant. For seven years they had asked, I wonder what Captain Eben Pierce is going to do with the old spray. The day I appeared, there was a buzz at the gossip exchange. At last, someone had come and was actually at work on the old spray. Breaking her up, I suppose? No, nope, gonna rebuild her. Great was the amazement. Will it pay? was a question which for a year or more I answered by declaring that I would make it pay. My axe felled a stout oak tree nearby for a keel, and Farmer Howard, for a small sum of money, hauled in this and enough timbers for the frame of the new vessel. I rigged a steam box and a pot for a boiler. The timbers for ribs, being straight saplings, were dressed and steamed till supple, and then bent over a log where they were secured till set. Something tangible appeared every day to show for my labour, and the neighbours made the work sociable.
It was a great day in the spray shipyard when her new stem was set up and fastened to the new keel. Whaling captains came from far to survey it. With one voice they pronounced it A1, and in their opinion, fit to smash ice. The oldest captain shook my hand warmly when the breast hooks were put in, declaring that he could see no reason why the spray should not cut in bow head yet off the coast of Greenland. The much esteemed stem piece was from the butt of the smartest kind of a pasture oak. It afterward split a coral patch in two at the Keeling Islands and did not receive a blemish. Better timber for a ship than pasture white oak never grew. The breast hooks, as well as all the ribs, were of this wood and were steamed and bent into shape as required. It was hard upon March when I began work in earnest. The weather was cold. Still, there was plenty of inspectors to back me with advice. When a whaling captain hove in sight, I just rested on my ads a while and gammed with him. New Bedford, the home of whaling captains, is connected with Fairhaven by a bridge and the walking is good. They never worked along up to the shipyard too often for me. It was the charming tales about Arctic whaling that inspired me to put a double set of breast hooks in the spray that she might shunt ice. The seasons came quickly while I worked. Hardly were the ribs of the sloop up before apple trees were in bloom. Then the daisies and the cherries came soon after. Close by the place where the old spray had now dissolved rested the ashes of John Cook, a reverend pilgrim father. So the new spray rose from hallowed ground. From the deck of the new craft I could put out my hand and pick cherries that grew over the little grave. The planks for the new vessel, which I soon came to put on, were of Georgia pine, an inch and a half thick. The operation of putting them on was tedious, but when on, the corking was easy. The outward edges stood slightly open to receive the corking, but the inner edges were so close that I could not see daylight between them. All the butts were fastened by through bolts, with screw nuts tightening them to the timbers, so there would be no complaint from them. Many bolts with screw nuts were used. In other parts of the construction, in all, about a thousand. It was my purpose to make my vessel stout and strong. Now, it is a law in Lloyd's that the Jane repaired all out of the old until she is entirely new is still the Jane. The spray changed her, being so gradually that it was hard to say at what point the old died or the new took birth, and it was no matter. The bulwarks I built up of white oak stanchions 14 inches high and covered with 7 8 inch white pine. These stanchions mortised through a 2 inch covering board I corked with thin cedar wedges. They have remained perfectly tight ever since. The deck I made of 1.5 inch by 3 inch white pine spiked to beam 6 by 6 inches of yellow or Georgia pine placed 3 feet apart. The deck enclosures were one over the aperture of the main hatch six feet by six for a cooking galley and a trunk further aft about ten feet by twelve for a cabin. Both of these rose about three feet above the deck and were sunk sufficiently into the hold to afford headroom. In the spaces along the sides of the cabin under the deck I arranged a berth to sleep in and shelves for small storage not forgetting a place for the medicine chest. In the midship hold that is the space between cabin and galley under the deck was room for provisioning of water, salt, beef, etc., ample for many months. The hull of my vessel being now put together as strongly as wood and iron could make her, and the various rooms partitioned off, I set about corking ship. 
Grave fears were entertained by some that at this point I should fail. I myself gave some thought to the advisability of a professional corker. The very first blow I struck on the cotton with a corking iron, which I thought was right, many others thought wrong. It'll crawl, cried a man from Marion, passing with a basket of clams on his back. It'll crawl, cried another from West Island, when he saw me driving cotton into the seams. Bruno simply wagged his tail. Even Mr. Ben Jay, noted authority on whaling ships, whose mind, however, was said to totter, asked rather confidently if I did not think it would crawl. How fast will it crawl, cried my old captain friend, who had been towed by many a lively sperm whale. Tell us how fast, cried he, that we may get into port in time. However, I drove a thread of oakum on top of the cotton, as from the first I had intended to do, and Bruno again wagged his tail. The cotton never crawled. When the corking was finished, two coats of copper paint were slapped on the bottom, two of white lead on the top sides and bulwarks. The rudder was then shipped and painted, and on the following day the spray was launched. As she rowed at her ancient rust-eaten anchor, she sat on the water like a swan. The spray's dimensions were, when finished, 36 feet 9 inches long overall, 14 feet 2 inches wide, and 4 feet 2 inches deep in the hold. Her tonnage being 9 tons net and 12 and 71 hundredths tons gross. Then the mast, a smart New Hampshire spruce, was fitted, and likewise all the small appurtenances necessary for a short cruise. Sails were bent, and away she flew with my friend Captain Pierce and me across Buzzards Bay on a trial trip. The only thing that now worried my friends along the beach was, Will she pay? The cost of my new vessel was $553.62 for materials and 13 months of my own labour. I was several months more than that at Fairhaven, for I got work now and then on an occasional whale ship fitting farther down the harbour, and that kept me the overtime. Chapter 2 I spent a season in my new craft fishing on the coast, only to find that I had not the cunning properly to bait a hook. But at last the time arrived to weigh anchor and get to sea in earnest. I had resolved on a voyage around the world, and as the wind on the morning of April 24, 1895 was fair at noon, I weighed anchor, set sail, and filled away from Boston, where the spray had been moored snugly all winter. The Twelve o'clock whistles were blowing just as a sloop shot ahead under full sail. A short board was made up the harbour on the port tack, then coming about she stood seaward with her boom well off to port and swung past the ferries with lively heels. A photographer on the outer pier at East Boston got a picture of her as she swept by, her flag at the peak throwing its folds clear. A thrilling pulse beat high in me. My step was light on deck in the crisp air. I felt there could be no turning back and that I was engaging in an adventure, the meaning of which I thoroughly understood. I had taken little advice from anyone and I had a right to my own opinions in matters pertaining to the sea. That the best of sailors might do worse than even I alone was borne in upon me not a league from Boston docks where a great steamship fully manned, officered and piloted lay stranded and broken. This was a Venetian. She was broken completely in two over a ledge. So in the first hour of my lone voyage I had proof that the spray could at least do better than this full-handed steamship for I was already farther on my voyage than she. Take warning, Spray, and have a care, I uttered aloud to my bark, passing fairy-like silently down the bay. The wind freshened, and the spray rounded Deer Island light, 
going at the rate of seven knots. Passing it, she squared away direct for Gloucester, where she was to procure some fishermen's stores. Waves dancing joyously across Massachusetts Bay met the sloop coming out to dash themselves instantly into myriads of sparkling gems that hung about her breast at every surge. The day was perfect, the sunlight clear and strong. Every particle of water thrown into the air became a gem, and the spray, making good her name as she dashed ahead, snatched necklace after necklace from the sea, and as often threw them away. We have all seen miniature rainbows about a ship's prow, but the spray flung out a bow of her own that day, such as I had never seen before. Her good angel had embarked on the voyage, so I read it in the sea. Bold Nahant was soon abeam, then Marblehead was put astern. Other vessels were outward bound, but none of them passed the spray, flying along on her course. I heard the clanking of the dismal bell on Norman's Woe as we went by, and the reef where the schooner Hesperus struck I passed close aboard. The bones of a wreck tossed up lay bleaching on the shore abreast. The wind still freshening, I settled the throat of the mainsail to ease the sloop's helm, for I could hardly hold her before it with the whole mainsail set. A schooner ahead of me lowered all sail and ran into port under bare poles, the wind being fair. As a spray brushed by the stranger, I saw that some of his sails were gone, and much broken canvas hung in his rigging from the effects of a squall. I made for the cove a lovely branch of Gloucester's fine harbour, again to look the spray over, and again to weigh the voyage and my feelings and all that. The bay was feather-white as my little vessel tore in. It was my first experience of coming into port alone with a craft of any size, and in among shipping. Old fishermen ran down to the wharf for which the spray was heading, apparently intent upon braining herself there. I hardly know how a calamity was averted, but with my heart in my mouth, almost, I let go the wheel, stepped quickly forward and down the jib. The sloop, naturally rounded in the wind and just ranging ahead, laid her cheek against a mooring pile at the windward corner of the wharf, so quietly, after all, that she would not have broken an egg. Very leisurely, I passed a rope around the post, and she was moored. Then a cheer went up from the little crowd on the wharf. You couldn't have done it better, cried an old skipper, if you'd weighed a ton. Now, my weight was rather less than a fifteenth part of a ton, but I said nothing, only putting on a look of careless indifference to say for me, oh, that's nothing, for some of the ablest sailors in the world were looking at me, and my wish was not to appear green, for I had a mind to stay in Gloucester several days. Had I uttered a word, it would surely have betrayed me, for I was still quite nervous and short of breath. I remained in Gloucester about two weeks, fitting out with the various articles for the voyage most readily obtained there. The owners of the wharf where I lay, and of many fishing vessels, put on board dry cod galore, also a barrel of oil to calm the waves. They were old skippers themselves and took a great interest in the voyage. They also made the spray a present of a fisherman's own lantern, which I found would throw a light a great distance round. Indeed, a ship that would run another down, having such a good light aboard, would be capable of running down a light ship. A gaff, a pew, a dip net, all of which an old fisherman declared I could not sail without, were also put on board. Then too, from across the cove, came a case of copper paint, a famous anti-fouling article which stood me in good stead long after. 
I slapped two coats of this paint on the bottom of the spray while she lay a tide or so on the hard beach. For a boat to take along, I made shift to cut a castaway dory in two athwart ships, boarding up the end where it was cut. This half dory I could hoist in and out by the nose easily enough by hooking the throat halyards into a strop fitted for the purpose. A whole dory would have been heavy and awkward to handle alone. Manifestly, there was not much room on deck for more than a half a boat, which, after all, was better than no boat at all, and was large enough for one man. I perceived, moreover, that the newly arranged craft would also answer for a washing machine when placed athwart ships, and also for a bathtub. Indeed, for the former office, my raised dory gained such a reputation on the voyage that my washerwoman in Samoa would not take no for an answer. She could see with one eye that it was a new invention which beat any Yankee notion ever brought by missionaries to the islands, and she had to have it. The want of a chronometer for the voyage was all that now worried me. In our newfangled notions of navigation, it is supposed that a mariner cannot find his way without one, and I had myself drifted into this way of thinking. My old chronometer, a good one, had been long in disuse. It would cost $15 to clean it and rate it. $15! For sufficient reasons, I left that timepiece at home, where the Dutchman left his anchor. I had the great lantern, and a lady in Boston sent me the price of a large two-burner cabin lamp, which lighted the cabin at night, and by some small contriving served for a stove through the day. Being thus refitted, I was once more ready for sea, and on May 7th again made sail. With a little room in which to turn, the spray in gathering headway scratched the paint of an old fine-weathered craft in the fairway, being puttied and painted for a summer voyage. "'Who'll pay for that?' growled the painters. "'I will,' said I. "'I with the main sheet.' echoed the captain of the Bluebird, close by, which is his way of saying that I was off. There was nothing to pay for above five cents worth of paint, maybe, but such a din was raised between the old hooker and the Bluebird, which now took up my case, that the first cause of it was forgotten altogether. Anyhow, no bill was sent after me. The weather was mild on the day of my departure from Gloucester. On the point ahead, as the spray stood out of the cove, was a lively picture, for the front of a tall factory was a flutter of handkerchiefs and caps. Pretty faces peered out of the windows from the top to the bottom of the building, all smiling, bon voyage. Some hailed me to know where away and why alone. Why? When I made as if to stand in, a hundred pairs of arms reached out and said, Come! But the shore was dangerous. The sloop worked out of the bay against a light southwest wind and about noon squared away off Eastern Point receiving at the same time a hearty salute, the last of many kindnesses to her at Gloucester. The wind freshened off the point, and skipping along smoothly, the spray was soon off Thatcher's Island Lights. Thence, shaping her course east by compass to go north of Cash's Ledge and the Amen Rocks, I sat and considered the matter all over again, and asked myself once more whether it were best to sail beyond the ledge and rocks at all. I had only said that I would sail around the world in the spray, Dangers of the sea accepted, but I must have said it very much in earnest. The charter party, with myself, seemed to bind me, and so I sailed on. Toward night, I hauled the sloop to the wind, and baiting a hook, sounded for bottom fish in thirty fathoms of water on the edge of Cash's ledge. With fair success, I hauled till dark, landing on deck three cod and two haddocks, one hake, and best of all, a small halibut, all plump and spry. 
This, I thought, would be the place to take in a good stock of provisions above what I already had, so I put out a sea anchor that would hold her head to windward. The current being southwest against the wind, I felt quite sure I would find the spray still on the bank or near it in the morning. Then, straddling the cable and putting my great lantern in the rigging, I lay down for the first time at sea alone, not to sleep, but to doze and to dream. I had read somewhere of a fishing schooner hooking her anchor into a whale and being towed a long way and at great speed. This was exactly what happened to the spray in my dream. I could not shake it off entirely when I awoke and found that it was the wind blowing and the heavy sea now running that had disturbed my short rest. A scud was flying across the moon. A storm was brewing. Indeed, it was already stormy. I reefed the sails, then hauled in my sea anchor and setting what canvas the sloop could carry, headed her away from Monhegan Light, which she had made before daylight on the morning of the 8th. The wind being free, I ran on into Round Pond Harbour, which is a little port east from Pemaquid. There I rested a day, while the wind rattled among the pine trees on shore. But the following day was fine enough, and I put to sea, at first writing up a log from Cape Ann, not omitting a full account of my adventure with the whale. The spray, heading east, stretched along the coast among many islands and over a tranquil sea. At evening of this day, May 10th, she came up with a considerable island, which I shall always think of as the Isle of Frogs, for the spray was charmed by a million voices. From the island of frogs we made for the island of birds, called Gannet Island, and sometimes Gannet Rock, whereon is a bright intermittent light which flashed fitfully across the spray's deck as she coasted along under its light and shade. Thence, shaping a course from Briar's Island, I came among vessels the following afternoon on the western fishing grounds, and after speaking a fisherman at anchor who gave me a wrong course, the spray sailed directly over the southwest ledge through the worst tide race in the Bay of Fundy and got into Westport Harbour in Nova Scotia, where I had spent eight years of my life as a lad. The fisherman may have said east-southeast, the course I was steering when I hailed him, but I thought he said east-nor-east, and I accordingly changed it to that. Before he made up his mind to answer me at all, he improved the occasion of his own curiosity to know where I was from, and if I was alone, and if I didn't have no dog, no cat. It was the first time in all my life at sea that I heard a hail for information answered by a question. I think the chap belonged to the foreign islands. There was one thing I was sure of, and that was that he did not belong to Briar's Island, because he dodged a sea that slopped over the rail, and stopping to brush the water from his face, lost a fine cod which he was about to ship. My islander would not have done that. It is known that a Briar Islander, fish or no fish on his hook, never flinches from a sea. He just tends to his lines and hauls or saws. Nay, have I not seen my old friend Deacon W.D., a good man of the island, while listening to a sermon in the little church on the hill, reach out his hand over the door of his pew and jig imaginary squid in the aisle, to the intense delight of the young people, who did not realise that to catch good fish one must have good bait, the thing most on the deacon's mind. I was delighted to reach Westport. Any port at all would have been delightful after the terrible thrashing I got in the fierce Southwest rip, and to find myself among old schoolmates now was charming. It was the 13th of the month, and 13 is my lucky number, 
a fact registered long before Dr. Nansen sailed in search of the North Pole with his crew of 13. Perhaps he had heard of my success in taking a most extraordinary ship successfully to Brazil with that number of crew. The very stones on Briar Island I was glad to see again, and I knew them all. The little shop round the corner, which for 35 years I had not seen, was the same, except that it looked a deal smaller. It wore the same shingles, I was sure of it, for did not I know the roof where we boys, night after night, hunted for the skin of a black cat to be taken on a dark night to make a plaster for a poor lame man? Lowry, the tailor, lived there when boys were boys. In his day he was fond of the gun. He always carried his powder loose in the tail pocket of his coat. He usually had in his mouth a short doodon, but in an evil moment he put the doodon, lighted, in the pocket among the powder. Mr. Lowry was an eccentric man. At Briars Island I overhauled the spray once more and tried her seams, but found that even the test of the southwest rip had started nothing. Bad weather and much headwind prevailing outside, I was in no hurry to round Cape Sable. I made a short excursion with some friends to St. Mary's Bay, an old cruising ground, and back to the island. Then I sailed, putting into Yarmouth the following day on account of fog and headwind. I spent some days pleasantly enough in Yarmouth, took in some butter for the voyage, also a barrel of potatoes, filled six barrels of water and stowed all under deck. At Yarmouth too, I got my famous tin clock, the only timepiece I carried on the whole voyage. The price of it was a dollar and a half, but on account of the face being smashed, the merchant let me have it for a dollar. That's the end of chapters one and two. If you'd like to listen to my commentary as a solo round the world sailor and resident of Nova Scotia, hang on in there. If you just want to listen to the story, now's the time to move on to the next podcast. Well, welcome to the commentary of this incredible book. Uh, I wanted to put this commentary into this recording so that I could help to unpack this book for people who um, may have an interest in sailing, who want to read a book of the guy that went first around the world, but it's perhaps difficult to dig through the language and uh, you don't know the necessarily the geographic area, you don't know the people. Um, I'm in a unique position to be able to help with that. My background, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you'll know, um, I've done about 300,000 miles sailing at sea, uh, about a quarter of a million of them as the, the master of the vessels I've been on. Um, I'm now also living in Nova Scotia. I'm not originally from Nova Scotia, which you can tell from my accent if you know the area, but I moved here about eight years ago and uh, having lived all over the world, having lived out of a seaman's duffel bag, give or take, for two decades, I came to Nova Scotia and literally dropped anchor within, uh, within a day and within a week I'd swallowed the anchor and I was going nowhere. So. I'm very much, uh, what's the right word here, a fan of Nova Scotia. I guess, yeah, you need to be living here for a couple of generations to be a local. Like, it's going to be my grandkids who are local to uh, Nova Scotia at the moment. I'm what around here they call a CFA, come from away. Um, but I think because of that CFA uh, title, it, maybe that's a negative thing here. But as a positive thing, I've traveled the rest of the world. Um, I've traveled to over 70 countries. I've lived in 11 different countries, if you consider living somewhere more than four months. And I know what else is available. And when I came to Nova Scotia, I was very clear right from the start that this was exactly the kind of place that I wanted to live. 
Nova Scotia's heritage with the sea is is long, industrious, and very important. Nova Scotia is on the eastern side of Canada. It's a it's kind of like an a big island that's connected to the land by a a, a, a relatively wide uh, land bridge, but it's very much got this feeling that it's it's kind of its own place. It's um, once you go to the north and you get to Cape Breton, that is an island, and there's a bridge that goes over to it. Um, but there's a very much a kind of truncation away from the rest of Canada for for Nova Scotia. It is um, subject to harsh winters, not as harsh as the ones that Joshua Slocum and people of the 1900s would have been experiencing because we have, of course, had a warming up of the world as part of a natural pattern of warming. We were in a mini ice age at the beginning of the 1800s or just kind of coming out of it. And by the 1900s, those effects were still being felt. If you look at early Christmas cards, Christmas cards became popular with the Victorians and the Edwardians. Um, those Christmas cards have got very heavy, deep snow scenes in them, even though in places like the UK, um, deep lakes have not frozen in 100 years. Um, snow does not fall six feet deep anymore, and yet we have Christmas cards of trees with snow on them and, and carriages. It was a colder part of the world. But Nova Scotia now in the winter can go down to um, minus 20 and that's minus 20 Celsius, which is about zero Fahrenheit. We get very strong winds here. We're right on the Atlantic, of course. Um, we are more affected by the Labrador current, which is a cold current coming down through Labrador, down the west side of uh, Newfoundland, Labrador, and then past Cape Breton and spilling out into the uh, ocean just north of us. But we have the Gulf Stream about 100 miles to the south of us, and that bringing very, very warm water up from the Caribbean. So <clears throat> where the Gulf Stream comes up towards Nova Scotia and then hooks to the right and hooks to the east and starts heading towards Europe, that is a, a confluence there where you've got this four-knot current of water, 21 degrees, hooking round. Um, that is sitting right alongside water, which is eight degrees Celsius, which is then a massive difference. And you can imagine the kind of storms which are built up in an area of such different temperatures in the water. The autumn here in Nova Scotia is uh, like a lot of the northeast of the U.S. and, uh, and Canada. Um, we get these wonderful tones in the trees. It goes red and orange and yellow, and it's the most amazing display. Um, and then the summers, I've got to say, like, uh, it's uh, November while I'm recording this, November 16th. And uh, the temperature only two or three days ago was 20 Celsius, which is up in the high 60s Fahrenheit. So we, we can have very, very warm periods going late into the year. So Nova Scotia is a beautiful region. Historically, it was very, very important for fishing. When cod was kind of discovered off of uh, Nova Scotia, and the incredibly rich fishing grounds of the Grand Banks and all of the banks that go all the way down um, towards Block Island, um, the region where we are now, you have these shallow areas out at sea, and they're fantastic for uh, fish stocks, for lobster stocks, for everything uh, aquatic seems to grow and develop and, and, and thrive in these uh, shallower areas. And the, the banks have been an incredible economic engine for this part of the world, but particularly Nova Scotia. And Nova Scotia being on that cutting edge of um, technology in the 1800s, uh, had some of the fastest ships in the world, had some of the 
uh, keenest uh, and most able sailors in the world. And literally the phrase wooden ships and iron men comes from this area. So the world which Slocum was born into, and he was born in uh, 1844, right in the kind of heyday of this stuff. He was born in Nova Scotia into a beautiful, harsh, economically important, cutting edge part of the world. And that's kind of hard to understand now because obviously when we look back in time, we think, well, you know, the past was the worst, everything was awful. But the technology that they were pursuing was the uh, the end of, I always talk about this, like 5,000 years of uh, sailing uh, history. If we look back to the earliest ships that have been found out in uh, uh, in Egypt, in China, humans have been sailing for a very long time. The ultimate expression of that occurred around the end of the 1800s. And then the internal combustion engine came in. And when it did, well, that was the end of that. We started to kind of go downhill in terms of big ships trading with sails. Obviously, sailing has leapt forward in the hundred years since uh, in terms of cruising and racing. But in terms of big ships and moving things around and it being a commercial merchant industry, that was dying out big time by the 1900s. So Slocum was born right into the the kind of apogee of this uh, of this period of uh, of sailing. He was born. Um, he, his description of where he lives is absolutely perfect. North Mountain, dividing up the um, the, the, the landmass of, of Nova Scotia in that area. On one side, the Bay of Fundy. Now, the Bay of Fundy is really important because it has some of the biggest tides in the world. You get ten meter tides. That's thirty three foot tides from high tide to low tide at Springs can be 33 feet. There's actually a place in the Bay of Fundy where there's a company that, uh, as the tide goes down, they take out tables and chairs, and as the tide is low, you can um, have a meal on the seafloor, basically what would be 30 feet down uh, four or five hours later. That's how big these tides are. So in the, in the chapters we just read where he's talking about this very, very strong tidal um, uh, uh, shift that he's having to go through, the, the current, the bars, this is a part of the world where you need to have your wits about you. If you can sail in the waters of Nova Scotia, you can basically sail anywhere. Um, he was born, um, he doesn't uh, describe it exactly, but he was born in a ba- place called Mount Hanley, um, which at the time would have been recorded as the Wilmot Station. Um, Mount Hanley is literally uh, 60 miles, 100 kilometers down the road for me. And I think, I think that's why, I think there's a couple of reasons why I want to read this book. Firstly, um, I did get quite a lot of requests to read it. I, I read a little bit of it in a previous podcast and people seem to like that. Um, the other thing is that it's in the public domain, <laughs> so it's legal for me to do it, which is great. But also the thing is, my background, as I say, 300,000 miles the captain of many sailing vessels, living in Nova Scotia, but also a solo around the world sailor. Um, Slocum's story speaks to me, perhaps in a way that it doesn't necessarily for everyone because the exact way that he's feeling, the way that he's talking, the things that he's talking about, I've skippered many traditional vessels. I started out as a rigger on tall ships. My life in lots of ways is kind of like a... um, uh, a reflection of, of of Slocum's, and I've ended up without even knowing. I knew Joshua Slocum was that the edition that I'm reading to you from is actually a first edition. It's a 1900 edition, and the book was published in 1900. Lovely red cover and these two seahorses interwoven with an anchor, and then 
gold uh, gilding on the on the edge of the page is a beautiful thing. I've had that for many years, and it was only really when I came to Nova Scotia and then kind of thought, oh yeah, wow, this is where Slocum's from. But um, to give you an idea, Mount Hanley, where Slocum was born, is literally about an hour's drive from here. And I think I'm going to read the whole of the book in the next couple of weeks. I think one of them will actually go down to Mount Hanley and see if we can do a bit of uh, outside broadcasting and and uh, talk through what it's like to be there. So um, Slocum's own account of uh, uh, of the, uh, what Nova Scotia is about is absolutely on, on you know, on par and absolutely on target. Um, as he says, um, it, it is uh, nothing against the Master Mariner. A Master Mariner would be someone who has command of a, of a large ship. And still today, um, I, I never refer to myself as captain in anything. I'm a skipper. Captains are people that drive um, merchant ships and took 10 or 15 years to get to that position and huge amounts of qualifications. And uh, people that drive um, military ships, in my mind, those people are captains. I'm a skipper. I drive a sailing boat and normally not much bigger than 20, 25 meters. That's, you know, 70 odd feet. So um, he, though, says that uh, is nothing against a master mariner if the birthplace mentioned on his certificate be Nova Scotia. And it, it's for me a sad thing to kind of be here in Nova Scotia and to realize that many people have kind of forgotten that history, forgotten that heritage that Nova Scotia has to the sea. The American Northeast really, really kind of claims that and owns that and embodies that um, that that heritage that they have. You go down to Mystic Seaport, it's an incredible day out and a real kind of throwing you into the, um, you know, what it would have been to live in the, in the late 1700s, 1800s. It's fantastic. Nova Scotia, despite being part of a country that has uh, a sailing boat, which we'll be discussing at another point, the Blue Nose, on the money, literally it's on the 10 cent coin, um, and that boat being famous for being a race boat. So despite Nova Scotia being in a country where they have a race boat on the money, um, their, their industry now is uh, very commercial. It's offshore. Um, it's definitely still part of the economic uh, uh, landscape here in Nova Scotia. If you live in Mystic or if you live in Annapolis or if you live in Newport, sailing and that world is really still part of what the town is about. Nova Scotia, yeah, we kind of did that um, and we've moved on. Um, I think it'd be wonderful if that had a bit of a resurgence here. The, the lines that um, Slocum gives about his uh, father is uh, actually reminds me of my own father. He says that um, he was the sort of man that if he had uh, been wrecked on a desolate island uh, and he had a jackknife with him, he, he'd find his, way, find his way home. Like he'd be able to basically get a tree down and build it into something and go. If you look at the Wikipedia entry for um, uh, Joshua Slocum, which you know is, is, is a good source of information, there is a Joshua Slocum Society and they've clearly updated and done a really good job on his Wikipedia page, they point out that his father was quite the disciplinarian. And I don't think for the 1850s, as, as um, Slocum's uh, coming up, I don't think that that's particularly unusual. Um, they also had a lot of kids in that house. I think by the end of it, they had 11 kids. So um, there was a lot going on and times were no doubt uh, difficult. They started out in Mount Hanley, but then by the time that Slocum is eight years old, that's when they moved to Briar Island. And we hear Briar Island mentioned in this. If we go a couple of pages further on, you remember the bit where he meets the, um, he meets the uh, fisherman at sea and he says, I think the chap belonged to the foreign islands, although I'm not sure exactly which islands he's talking to. There was one thing I was sure of, and that was that he did not belong to Briar's Island because he dodged a sea that slopped over the rail and stopped to, uh, and stopping to brush the water 
he lost a fine cod which he was about to ship. My islander, he says, would not have done that. It is known that a briar islander, fish or no fish on his hook, never flinches from a sea. He just tends to his lines and hauls or saws. The people of Briar Island, the people of Nova Scotia, the people of this region were incredibly hardy seafarers. Um, there's one thing uh, uh, which I'm always in awe of. There's an Atlantic Fisheries Museum in Lunenburg here in Nova Scotia where I live. And uh, you go down and have a look at the dories. And again, uh, Slocum talks about a dory. A dory is a very simple boat with um, two pinched off uh, simple made uh, ends on it a flat bottom made of just literally a few planks of wood and a thought ship's board to sit on. Um, they were able to nest inside each other on the deck of a ship. And then the sailing, um, the, the fishing style was that the ship would uh, drive to a windward position, deploy the dories, which may or may not have sails, often not, just oars. And then they would bring themselves to the downwind position and collect the dories at the end of the day. So the fishermen would just be jigging first for squid and then once they had the squid on board that would be their bait and then they would tend their lines and haul or saw as he says here um, and bring the cod on board. What an incredible way to go to work and I have seen this actually still playing out. Um, last time I saw it was in the Vietnam and around um, Cambodia and the fishermen's there have a kind of reed basket which is created which is probably about uh, five feet across and about maybe two and a half feet deep made from reed a little kind of rail uh, of some kind of very pliable wood going around the top of it um, definitely not something that you can row definitely not something you, you can barely paddle it it's a coracle um, but again they're nested up inside what is now motorized fishing vessels and then deposited into the water with the the fishermen on board with literally a hat and um uh, some sunglasses and then they're they're getting in squid and they're getting in all sorts of different fish um, and then I guess hope to God that the fishing boat comes back and get you that part of the world oftentimes they're press ganged into it um, and unfortunately I think a lot of them are lost because the ships are not able to find them um, come the end of the day so it sounds super antiquated and yet that is exactly what people are doing right now in the world the area where Slocum's doing it, uh, the area where Slocum's people are doing it off of Nova Scotia, um, it, it would be bitterly cold in the winter, um, really cold, and uh, sea temperatures barely above freezing, very, very high winds. Um, quite how these people were able to do it, I, I literally don't know. But um, as he says, you know, tough, tough in a way that um, the sea going in your face wouldn't even make you flinch. Um, from reading on Wikipedia, um, Slocum... Um, was kind of getting pushed into being a, a leather boot maker, a cobbler, which is what his father was doing uh, on Briar Island. But it seems, certainly from the way it's uh, told, that um, Slocum needed to go to sea. And I think for some people, you just need to go to sea. It just, it, it kind of makes sense. Whatever it is about it, I was actually 18 before I really got into sailing. I joined a tall ship in Hong Kong. And the moment that I saw that ship at anchor, and, and got on board it the first night, I knew this was the place I needed to be. That's how sailing is to some people. That's maybe how the circus is to other people. It's, it's what fills you up and nourishes you and makes you feel right. And if you're not on a ship and if you're not at sea, something's wrong. And so those that need to go away, go away. But we should also remember that 
the thrill of the excitement of going and the life that was possible at that time. Ships would go from port to port and would uh, spend a long time in port while they were loaded and unloaded. You got to see the place, have a new set of friends. Of course, the apocryphal stories of sailors having multiple families in multiple places, that probably an element of truth in it. These days, people turn around in, in a matter of hours in port and being a merchant seafarer is nothing like that. But in Joshua Slocum's day, uh, the, the, the call of the sea would have been perhaps something that stirred him. But also, you know, he's living on an island in rural Nova, Nova Scotia and the lure of getting on a boat and going might well have been just uh, intoxicating. And indeed, he leaves home um, at uh, the age uh, of 16 in 1860. His mother, unfortunately, has, uh, has passed away. Um, and then he gets on a ship with his mate uh, out of Halifax, Nova Scotia, bound for Dublin Island. So his early start is one on this island and um, one which has been you know, replicated many times over in the history of the world. But he soon made his way back to these waters because even if he was bound for foreign shores, he would be coming from somewhere that was at the epicenter of sailing, at the epicenter of, uh, of, uh, of innovation and commerce around uh, fishing and the sea. So no surprise that he ends up back there. Um, let's go on to the, the, the boat. So the spray, of course, has become super famous for what it allowed Joshua Slocum to do. I think it's, it's worth reviewing here, if anybody didn't uh, know, that Slocum's book and his story made a real stir at the time. He set off in uh, 1898 and uh, he was off around the world doing a, a voyage, which at that point they felt was impossible. Although um, ships were, of course, plying their trade all over the world, were doing um, incredible voyages down to Australia, New Zealand, to South America, up to China. The idea of going on your own was not something that anybody kind of decided to do. And there's, there's a lot of question marks in a way as to why he would choose to do it, because it is a very singular thing to choose to go and do for someone which is coming from a world where sailing was about commerce and sailing was about you know, moving with intent. Suddenly here's this guy who just, he's like, well, I'm just going to go and kind of uh, sail around the world, like, you know, for, for whatever. Was he doing it deliberately to create a book and create a stir and create some kind of like fame and legacy in his life? Was he doing it for the love of the sailing? Um, he himself says that um, he couldn't get a job in a shipyard because uh, he'd have to pay, was it uh, paid to a society basically to be like, it was uh, like kind of a union. He'd have to pay a union to be in a boatyard. There weren't enough ships to go around. So for this old guy, there was not many options. So he perhaps was doing what we all try and do uh, in difficult circumstances in our life, which is create some kind of silver lining out of the clouds that surround us and what he chooses to do. I don't know if at the very beginning, when he first gets the boat, if his idea is to sail solo around the world. I, he doesn't really say, and I haven't read it elsewhere, as to, you know, had he always been thinking for the last 10 years, I'm going to sail around the world, or did he have a boat that he'd kind of sort of got tricked into um, and then think, what can I do with this? And I think there, there's a little bit of a, a lesson for all of us. You know, it's, it's that old thing. If you get given lemons, um, sail them around the world. <laughs> or is it make lemonade? I forget. But his, his voyage um, was, was three years, two months and two days. So it wasn't like he was nipping around the block and back. And I think for many people, um, him setting off was just the, the end of the world. In fact, 
you know, I've got this first edition sitting here. It's literally blank page to begin with. Then it says the title Sailing Alone Around the World. Then it's got a lovely picture uh, of the spray, which is from a photograph. It's like a lithograph taken from a photograph of the boat in, in um, Australian waters. And then we've got the frontis page that tells us it's from Samson Lowe, Marston and Company in, uh, in Fleet Street. And then the next page, like where he wanted to say the thing that he wanted to say most, he says to the one who said the spray will come back. Um, and that, I think, is, uh, is, an, is an important thing to, to note in this. When people go and do stuff like this, when you set off solo around the world, now, for those that don't know, I've sailed twice around the world, both racing, one solo, um, and I'm looking to go and do it again soon in, uh, in, in my boat. And um, going and doing something like that, it's an incredibly narcissistic pursuit. Uh, in many ways, you're just going to kind of take yourself off and go and do this thing. Certainly in the modern world where you are trying to bring money together, sponsorship together, that kind of thing. Slocum obviously is doing it by the sweat of his own brow and by his own efforts and skills. So he's in a little bit different position, but he's got a dream of something that he wants to go and do. And he's pursuing it relentlessly. And it takes him a while to put the spray together. And I'm sure he was a bit of a kind of butt of a joke. You know, he when he talks about rebuilding the spray, he rebuilds it entirely. And that's something we'll just dip back into in a second. I just want to discuss that. But when he set off on this thing, People literally have been looking at him and going, you're a nut job. Like, why would you take a boat and just go and sail around the world? Like, for the hell of it, what, what would you do? That'd be like saying, I'm going to walk across America. I'm going to walk along the highways. It's like, what's the point? What are you going to get from doing it? And you're just walking along a, like a trade route. There's not even, I think people would have been really confused as to why he was doing this. But Slocum is the beginning of sailors taking on challenges to be a metaphor for other people so other people can vicariously travel with them slocum's book is one of the first pieces of media essentially which is produced where the story of sailors at sea and a sailor's adventures get trans transcribed and transposed back to everyday life and people are able to see the incredible challenges which um, which sailors have to overcome, which is not to, uh, you know, put sailors on a pedestal, but to say that humans can overcome incredible challenges. They can adapt, they can improvise, they can problem solve. And the sea gives you ample opportunities to do that on a near daily basis. So these stories can be incredibly inspiring. And Slocum, although he may well have been viewed as a nut job um, when he was setting off, and he himself has his own kind of doubts about it. He was incredibly intelligent about what he did when he got back and wrote the book and everything else. Certainly smarter than I was when I got back. It's very tricky when you get back from these things. I can remember coming back twice, uh, and both times I was leaving basically from, um, from, from La Rochelle. And the second time I actually came back to La Rochelle. It was a solo around-the-world trip. And I ended up back in the hotel room, in the same room that I had been in before I left. And I'm looking out the window at the boat that I've now just sailed around the world in. And I'd go like... What, what, did, what did I do that for? What, what was the point of that? If you're not getting something from yourself internally, there's very little to be got from it unless you take that story and you tell the story and you inspire other people. And that's what Slocum was super smart at. I think the thing to is sometimes when we look at the past, we think that these people are like simpler and not as smart as us. Basically, Slocum was like social media guru of his day. Like there wasn't much to, <laughs> that he could do, write letters to the newspaper, 
editorialize a story in the newspaper, write a book, like films weren't really in. Uh, what else was there? Do talks at, 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 at uh, you know, the community hall at the school. He wrote a book. He editorialized it in a newspaper and he did talks in a school. He literally did everything that was possible. He was, he was like an <laughs> Instagram uh, in, uh, um, influencer 120 years before anybody knew that was. So we got to look at this guy as being, he's a smart cookie. He's been dealt some lemons. There's no boat for him. He can't work in the boatyard. He's got this old boat he's kind of been tricked into. And look what he did with it. So certainly when uh, we're talking about um, his uh, skill to go and do this, um, his background, he was driving the Equidneck, uh, the Northern Lights. Northern Lights, obviously, if you've got a Northern Lights generator on your boat, that's where it gets its name from. One of the finest ships, as he says, uh, in American waters or certainly with American flag on it. Um, he then suddenly is transposed into this situation where he's got this little 36-foot 30, 30, boat and um, somewhat sort of tricked into it. But his style when he's writing this is really, I think it's um, a little tongue-in-cheek. I think he knew that those people that, um, those people that are involved in this, the, the getting ready to go, he knew when he wrote the book that they were going to read it. So there's little kind of things thrown in there as a kind of like... Uh, you know, up yours, basically. There, there's a lot, when you read this book, of, of Slocum making sure that he gets back just to prove the naysayers wrong. And if you, you know, I, I take a lot of inspiration from um, the uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger autobiography, which I read recently, and that wonderful speech that he did um, to the uh, college graduates in which he puts out his, I think, six rules of, of uh, successful living. And he says, ignore the naysayers. Okay, there's always going to be people that say you can't do it. And to those people, you have to go, okay, well, thanks for the challenge because now I'm going to go and prove you wrong. And again, Slocum is doing that. He's an incredibly inspirational character. You could say, well, it's just because he's an old stubborn, pig-headed, you know, wooden-headed guy. Maybe that's what heroes are made from often. That's just how it goes. Um, so people are saying to him, you know, will it pay? And then how is he going to get his money back from doing this thing? Because they can only think about boats as being a commercial adventure. When he starts to put the the um, the sealant in between the planks of the boat, he starts to knock in cotton, which is not necessarily a very normal way of doing it. You often use horsehair or oakum, but then they all saying to him, "Will it'll crawl, it'll crawl." But he knows enough, and he knows what he's doing, and he's certain in his skills. But he's very happy that what he's doing will work. And as he says in the book, you know, it never moved an inch because again, he knows that the people that said all this stuff to him are going to read the book in the end. Um, He's very keen to point out to us just how stalwart and solid the spray was and that he, he um, built the stem. The stem is the big uh, trunk of wood which runs up the very front of the boat. If you're going to ram a wall, that's what's going to hit first. That's where the planking on the side of the boat comes together. That's where the bilge of the boat meets the side of the boat. This is like the, the backbone of the boat. And he's very keen to point out to us what a good job he did to put this um, beautiful she-oak into the uh, into the, the front of the boat. And then he talks a lot about putting the breast hooks in. The breast hooks is like a flat plate of wood, which is where the kind of deck is at the top of the boat. If you've got a more open style rowboat, you'd see the breast hooks in that it would be this flat plate of wood right up in the bow uh, where the stem meets the top timbers on the side of the uh, hull. So he's keen to point out just how solid this boat has been constructed so it could even like bash its way through ice and what have you. So again, 
was he writing the book at sea? Was he writing the book afterwards? Whatever it was, he was definitely writing these words at a point when he knew that those components had come together and it worked out very well. And he's very keen to point out um, that, uh, well, that he did a good job. He's proud of his boat, as we all are. For those that set sail, you're always proud of your boat. Um, the spray becomes new and it, it, this process brings up an interesting question. When does a boat stop being what it was and starts being what it's going to become? As he says, uh, it's a law in Lloyd's. Now, it's Lloyd's of, uh, of London. That's an insurance group which um, has been providing insurance for seafarers and ships and cargoes for hundreds of years. So Lloyd's as an insurance company would have rules about um, when is a boat become something else, basically. And the, the question comes up, if you take a boat, take a ship, and you are going to replace every frame in it and all the planking and the decking, is it still the same boat afterwards? It's like Grandad's Axe. If it's had five new handles and three new heads, is it still Grandad's Axe? The answer to that is yes. And the way that we work that out is because it literally came down. There's been a few... Um, renovations and uh, rebuilds of boats over the years which have brought this to you know to to question in in wooden ship forums even in the modern age where everyone's talking to each other when is it a rebuild and when is it a new boat and when is it a renovation the the boat has to be recognizable as a boat through the entire process so you could replace every frame from the front to the back but you would have to replace them one at a time so at every point the boat is still recognizable as what it was before. You could take off all the planking. You could replace all the frames one by one. You could put all new planking on. But at any point, if anybody works in, walks into the, the workshop, they're going to recognize that it is still that boat that came up the slipway. And that's where he says, it is a law in Lloyd's that the Jane repaired uh, all out of the old until she is entirely new is still the Jane. The spray changed her being so gradually that it was hard to say at what point the old died or the new took birth. And it was no matter. There's a lot of superstition around sailing, superstition which has been brought in actually in much more modern era than, uh, than you might be open to believing. Um, a lot of the things that we worry about on ships now, oh, we shouldn't change the name and bananas and all this stuff is bunkum, which people who are not commercial seafarers uh, have brought into it to kind of create a, a feeling of the ethereal. Um, as he says, it doesn't matter. It, it's not, it doesn't really care. It's just, it, it is what it is. It's a boat, right? It's a tool. Now, can that tool still feel like it's got a little soul of its own, feel like it's still its own little entity? Absolutely. And his pride in the way that he's talking about the boat is, um, is absolutely evident. But it's a machine and he knows that and he's rebuilding it. And uh, it is the spray to him and he should know he's the guy that's rebuilding it. He takes a lot of time to explain all of the different uh, points of the, of the woodworking and bringing the boat together. If you've got a skill in, uh, in, in wooden shipbuilding, you'll appreciate what that he's doing. There's lovely um, uh, uh, illustrations all throughout this book. The illustrations are by Thomas Fogarty and George Varian. Um, for the longest time, I didn't really realize that. Uh, I, I thought that it was actually Slocum that had uh, had drawn them, but I really feel that they have. Uh, uh, I think that they were talking to Slocum. 
I think that they were making sure that what they drew was what he wanted them to draw. And I really feel that they uh, uh, accompany the story wonderfully and, and illuminate the story. On the frontispiece, page, as I say, there's uh, a picture of the spray, which is a lith I believe it's called lithograph, isn't it? Where you kind of transpose a, a picture onto uh, a photograph rather into a kind of drawn picture. Um, there's a beautiful one on the spray there. And then there's another one I know somewhere in this book I'd have to look through. A photographer gets a shot of the boat coming out of East uh, Boston. Um, and that picture is actually on the Wikipedia site. It's a wonderful uh, uh, image of the spray heading off down the harbour, brand new sails, looking fantastic. Uh, the boom far out to, uh, to, to leeward and this uh, flag uh, ripping along smartly at the top of the mast. And I think that's what brings it to life. Like this book is not just like some fiction that's been put about. This is somebody who decided... Oh, I'm going to uh, I'm going to take this uh, 36 foot boat, which is like smaller than anything I've ever captained before, and uh, barely bigger than a recreational pleasure boat or a little commercial fishing boat. And I'm going to take it and I'm going to sail around the world. And again, remember he's sailing west around the world, which is against the prevailing winds and against the prevailing currents. Something that's very close to my heart that route because it's that's what I'm intending to go and do with my boat. But Slocum um, is someone who. Is, is a real character that's not that long uh, ago. It's not some like far-flung distant like uh, uh, person who is uh, you know, not connected to the real world. This is someone who is a commercial seafarer. He is a, uh, a down-to-earth shipyard guy, captain of the ship, and yet from him comes this wonderfully descriptive tale, inspirational book uh, uh, of this voyage. And to anybody that's uh, going sailing, whether it be uh, cruising or racing or whatever, you've got to remember to tell the story because sailing is a part of human endeavor which is so beyond most people's understanding that uh, they never have any access to it. But if you can describe it well and you can describe the human endeavor of being on the sea and you can describe the adventure and the, the feeling that you get from passing through these difficult times, Again, to make that point, it can be hugely inspiring when that story comes home. I think what I love about um, Slocum is that he has a delicateness about his, uh, his observations, which um, really speaks to me. As he's going out through Massachusetts Bay, he's got this wonderful scene that he's describing. And he says, um, uh, waves dancing joyously across Massachusetts Bay met the sloop coming out to dash themselves instantly into myriads of sparkling gems that hung about her breast at every surge. The day was perfect, the sunlight clear and strong. Every particle of water thrown into the air became a gem and the spray, making good her name as she dashed ahead, snatched necklace after necklace from the sea and as often threw them away. We have all seen miniature rainbows about a ship's prow, but the spray flung out a bow of her own that day, such as I have never seen before. Her good angel, had embarked on the voyage, so I read it in the sea. Like, jeepers, come on. Like, this guy's, you know, the 1800s, he's a sea captain, he's a crusty old pipe-smoking dude that's building up a boat on the foreshore, and, you know, like, and then he can write like that? Like, I'm sure there's a bit of assistance given when he got back, but it comes from somewhere. He's remembered that scene and transposed that scene and wanted to describe that scene, and whether he was helped or not, um... That's what he saw as being important. He goes on and says that he sees the 
uh, the bones of, of of ships up on the on the on the rocks as he's leaving, and and says to the spray, take warning spray and have a care. He's seen the bones of a fully rigged, fully manned and officered and piloted ship up on the rocks, and he's already got further than they did. So he's like already personifying the boat that he's built himself and saying to hey look you know <laughs> you're already doing better than that one like how, how can we possibly be pushed back jumping ahead somewhat i love the little bit where he's coming into the cove and as he's coming in he's in this 36 foot boat and he's sailing on his own he's got a lot of speed on there's a lot of wind in the bay and as he comes in a lot of people start running down to the dock to come and um see what's going on and whether this ship is gonna as he says brain itself like smash itself on the jetty he says this old fisherman ran down to the wharf for which the spray was heading apparently intent upon braining herself there i hardly know how a calamity was averted but with my heart in my mouth almost i let go the wheel stepped quickly forward and down the jib the sloop naturally rounded in the wind and just ranging just kind of like going slightly ahead um, laid her cheek against a mooring pile at the windward corner of the wharf so quietly, after all, that she would not have broken an egg. Very leisurely, I passed a rope around the post and she was moored. Then a cheer went up from the little crowd on the wharf. And then he says, um, uh, had I uttered a word, it surely would have betrayed me, for I was still quite nervous and short of breath. As he says just slightly up there, this was some of the ablest sailors in the world. This region, this part of the world, when old fishermen and old sailors start running down to the dock to, um, to see you smash yourself there. That's like coming into the Newport Yacht Club or coming to the Royal Squadron or coming into your yacht club. Way too much speed on, obviously no engine, totally on your own, on a 36-foot boat which weighs many tons. You've got a, a heap of wind going on and you bring it in. And it's somehow <laughs> you avoid smashing it to pieces and becoming the talk of the town for the next 10 years. Um, and it just kisses the dock and you step ashore. You know what's going on with, with, um, with Slocum there. He's, uh, he's just like, I'm not going to say a word. Don't let anybody see me breathing hard here. Don't let me see them me panting in the wild look in my eyes and just act casual. Like if you can't... Uh, uh, understand what that is then <laughs> you're not pushing and sailing hard enough that moment where it comes good and you actually haven't completely embarrassed yourself that's what he's doing it's completely what he's doing all right and then going a little bit further on just to finish up a few words about these uh these couple of uh, uh chapters um he talks a bit at the end about his tin clock and that's going to come up quite a lot um he in going and getting the clock is actually a bit kind of like, well, you know, everyone thinks that unless you've got one fangled clock, you can't find your way around the world. He kind of, he has a clock, which is going to cost him quite a lot of money to get fixed up. He gets himself a cheaper one. He takes a cheap deal because he's got a smashed face. Like, I love this guy. Um, he's, he's like me. He's, uh, as I've said before, like people think that sailing's all like um, Formula One driving. And it's not. It's more like NASCAR. It's just like you just get it back together somehow and just keep moving forward. He's like, yeah, I'm going to get 50 cents off, like 30% off the cost of this clock um, because it's got a smashed face. I don't need the glass. I need the clock. So I love his style. But um, as we'll see later on, he does a lot of um, uh, what we would consider now to be unusual astro nav. He's just using a very simple clock, which is not rated in any way, like set up particularly to be a, um, uh, you know, a chronometer taking to sea. And he does a lot of navigation using the moon. And the moon is highly variable. It's moving very, very quickly compared to other elements in the sky. And trying to fix your position by something which is in such quick flux is very difficult. And yet he got himself around the world. So 
I would never be one to say, you should go and do it. It's really super simple because I've heard some terrible stories of people just not necessarily like death and disaster, but just really making a mess. There was a guy who was trying to sail around the UK a number of years ago and he was trying to do it with the road atlas. And I think the Royal National Lifeboat Institute in the UK, they saved him like 20 odd times until in the end they said, if we get a call from you again, we're not coming out because you're literally wasting hundreds of thousands of pounds of volunteered money that they've collected in and you are deliberately putting yourself at risk. So I would never be one to say, just go and try it because you must be safe when you go to sea. But you're dealing with someone with um, Slocum who's had an entire life at sea and he knows what to do to get through, but he can do it without the frills. And I love that about him. I love that he um, is willing to, to go and get involved and, and, and try and, and not, you know what, not just get involved. He's going to go and sail around the freaking world. He's going to go and do this incredible thing um you know what there's one other bit i'll read before before we uh, finish up with this the, the thing that i really like is that he he's he's he stops and he 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 has a think about what he's going to go and do and, and i've had this experience of being on a a boat solo at sea and really questioning like you know is this a good idea i can remember being on my way out of uh, france heading for cape town which is you know you're going to be 30 days at sea um it's, it's a, a six and a half thousand mile drive if you go in a straight line, but with the sailing, obviously it's further. Um, and I was down only as far as Tenerife, like a thousand miles or less into the, into the journey just by the Canary Islands there. And I'd had some big incident on deck. I think the Code 5, one of my flat cut racing headsails, a downwind sail, had come loose at the tack, but had taken the furler with it up into the sky. So there's this giant tennis court sized sail thrashing around with like five or six pounds of metal on the end of it. And it, you know, it was just a disasterville situation. I finally got through it. I got everything quietened down. The boat's just puddling along, like kind of in the, in the aftermath of this thing. And I just took some time and thought, I, should I be doing this? Like, is this a good idea? Like surely an adult should have stopped me. Like some responsible adult should have said, look, Chris, you shouldn't go and do this. You know, at that time I had very little experience of sailing solo. And so these moments of incredible introspection can come along when you're at sea obviously you're exhausted you're sleep deprived you're in a very dangerous situation there's a lot of other emotional things going on but you have these moments where you look inwards and go like am i am i meant to do this and he has that moment he says um uh thence shaping her course east by compass to go north of cash's ledge and Amen rocks i sat and considered the matter all over again and asked myself once more whether it were best to sail beyond the ledge and rocks at all. I had only said that I would sail around the world in the spray, dangers of the sea accepted. But I must have said it very much in earnest. The charter party with myself seemed to bind me, and so I sailed on. So what he's saying is like he kind of made a deal already, but the deal was with himself. And he, as both the questioner and as the charter party, um, you know, it, it was such a, a good deal and so well spoken that he's just like, oh, I better keep going. And it's, um, you know, I think that's what sailing can well be sometimes that you just wonder, what on earth am I doing in this situation? You're always going to question that. And it's if you've got yourself like set up that you know why you're doing it and you know that the, the craft that you've got is safe and you know you've got the skill set and, you know, you're still going to question whether you want to do it. But you take the next step forward and you just keep taking steps until either you complete what it is that you need to do or there are no more steps to be taken. It's the end of it. 
So as I as I sit here uh, speaking to you now, I'm sitting literally like in my sunroom here in Lunenburg in Nova Scotia. The rain's coming down today. Um, all those beautiful leaves I was talking about are all down on the grass and on the lawn and require me to buzz around in my little tractor and pick them all up later on if I've got time. Um, the trees are bare, which then has opened up the view down to the water, which I'm very lucky. There's about two or 300 feet and I'm down at the water. And sitting in the water, uh, about 60, 70 feet offshore, off the end of the dock, is my Open 60, which is branded up with Nova Scotia down the bow. Those who've been listening to the podcast a while know that this is something I'm looking to go and do. I'm going to go and take on the West around the world solo non-stop record. It's the same route, basically, that uh, Joshua Slocum took 120 years ago, 125 years ago. Um, since then, uh, in terms of doing it solo and non-stop, and Slocum stopped many times, but doing it non-stop, only six people have ever successfully completed that voyage. It's known as the impossible voyage. But as I look down the dock now, I can just see the mast. It's a 100-foot carbon mast. It would have wowed Slocum. Um, it's a carbon fiber hull that's super wide, um, 60 foot long. I can control all that sail area on my own. It would have wowed him. But the basic concept of what I want to do, he and I could have uh, smoked a pipe and discussed that sitting out on the deck here. My house is 150 years old. It would have been sitting here just as it is when he was around. I feel deeply connected to this, uh, this person and their story. When I read this book, I got to tell you, if you want to know the inside of the inside here, I had to edit the hell out of that first two chapters because it's very hard to sit as a solo sailor in Nova Scotia, looking down the garden at my own boat that I want to take around the world and not be moved by the words of somebody 120 years ago who's sitting not too very far from here and certainly connected to this place in a very, very visceral way, who was sitting and looking at his own boat and wondering the same thing. Can I do it? Can I make it? So I hope you enjoyed uh, that bit of commentary. I'm not sure that it really <laughs> added much to the book. Um, there's lots more to learn about Slocum, and I promise I will uh, do one of these. We'll actually go down to Mount Hanley and go and see where Slocum was born. Um, we can also go up to Halifax Harbor. We can kind of make it uh, that we read the book, but then we also kind of Go and visit these places and learn more about the person that's uh, uh, writing it. And I can tell you what it's like to be at sea. Once he's more at sea, we can talk more about that uh, in a solo sense. And um, I hope bring a little bit of illumination to this. It's not just some dusty old tome on a shelf, but a book that is just as relevant and just as interesting to read as a sailor as it was 120 years ago. But until then, I'd like to say wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope you're safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.